Welcome to this episode of Sound Bites, a podcast series produced by the National Psoriasis Foundation, the nation's leading organization for individuals living with psoriasis and psoriatic arthritis. In each episode, someone who lives with psoriatic disease, a loved one, or an expert will share insights with you on living well. If you like what you hear today, please subscribe to our podcast and join us every month at SoundBites for more insights on understanding, managing, and thriving with psoriasis and psoriatic arthritis. My name is Dr. Stacey Bell, and I'll be your guest host for this special edition of SoundBites. As the National Psoriasis Foundation's Chief Scientific and Medical Officer, I've been answering a lot of questions about the coronavirus. We have been closely monitoring the situation for our community but also for the well-being of everyone worldwide. I'm very fortunate to partner with many psoriatic disease experts, but also with many healthcare professionals across the nation. Joining me today is Dr. Albert Rizzo, Chief Medical Officer at the American Lung Association. Dr. Rizzo has long been a key medical advisor for the American Lung Association, playing a role in research, advocacy, communications, development, and health promotion. Dr. Rizzo is a member of the Section of Pulmonary and Critical Care Medicine at Christiana Care Health System in Newark, Delaware, and a member of the Christiana Care Pulmonary Associates. He is board certified in internal medicine, pulmonary, critical care, and sleep medicine. Joining Dr. Rizzo is Deb Brown, the Chief Mission Officer for the American Lung Association. Ms. Brown has an extensive history with the organization. During her 37-year career, she has been responsible for the development, implementation, and evaluation of adult and pediatric lung disease programs, along with passage of key legislative initiatives in the areas of tobacco, asthma, school health, and overall health care. She has also served as the Executive Vice President for the Mid-Atlantic Region of the American Lung Association before being promoted to Chief Mission Officer. Early after COVID-19 infections began in the U.S., Dr. Rizzo and I partnered on a webinar hosted by the National Health Council. A number of things have changed from those early days. Dr. Rizzo is with us today to address relevant questions relating to the COVID-19 pandemic, ways to protect yourselves and others, and what lies ahead. In addition, Ms. Brown will provide insight on how specialty and patient organizations can support providers and vice versa. Welcome, Dr. Rizzo and Ms. Brown. Thank you for being on SoundBites today with us. It is very nice to speak with you again, Dr. Rizzo. So much has changed since we presented the National Health Council webinar in March. What have we learned about COVID-19 and the pandemic and the virus over the past few weeks? Well, thank you, Stacy. We have learned a lot, but the unfortunate thing is we have a lot more to learn. The pandemic has certainly reached levels of severity that have been unprecedented in our times, and we are learning that healthcare systems have had to surge their resources sometimes adequately, sometimes near the point of breaking in order to deal with this. But we've also learned that measures such as social distancing seem to have effect. And certainly where we are right now in certain parts of the United States, the curve seems to be flattening a bit. And the hope is that other curves won't start spiking. I think another important thing we've learned is that fortunately, many people who get the disease seem to have very mild disease. In fact, some are asymptomatic. And that part has led to the realization that spread of the virus probably occurred much more than we thought from individuals who were carriers of the virus and had no symptoms at all and spread it unknowingly among us. And I think we also know now that high-risk groups that we've identified as those with chronic diseases, immunosuppressed 
medications, a number of factors lead to a higher risk of complications if the infection is obtained. So the other component to this is just the federal and local guidelines to individuals. For example, initially it was thought that wearing a mask in public was not necessarily needed. You and I discussed that in the previous webinar. Why did this approach change and how are other approaches been changed? Fortunately, we have had good guidance from the CDC with regard to treatment outlines, identification of individual groups at risk for more severe disease. We unfortunately have had less clear messaging with regard to the role of testing for the antigen and less adequate testing facilities for the antigen, which have taken a while to ramp up. I think the federal effort in that regard has improved, but we may find that a better response in the future is what we need. And I think we also have learned, as I said earlier, a lot about the disease in the last few months, certainly when it started in China compared to now, and the main one being around the asymptomatic carrier that I mentioned. That by itself is what triggered the recommendation of facial coverings when you're out in public. And I think the message had been initially unclear as to what that facial covering was meant to do. It is meant now to protect others from us. These facial coverings are not being worn to protect the wearer from inhaling the virus from other individuals. It's to protect others from an asymptomatic individual who's out at the grocery store or in line at the bank who is coughing, sneezing, talking, and not thinking they have the virus, spreading it into the air with their respiratory droplets. By wearing a facial covering out in public, we prevent that unknowing spread of the virus. And I think that has been a significant addition to the social distancing methods that have been put in place already. So early on, there was a belief that the older population was more susceptible to infection and also serious complications. What do you feel we know now? Are there other risk factors that we should all be considering? And what should young people be doing? Why should they be staying home as well? I think we certainly saw the continuation of the belief that the elderly are at more risk for severe complications and dying. And to that group, we've added individuals with chronic lung and heart disease, those with COPD or asthma, hypertension. We've also realized that diabetes can be a significant risk factor. And we also know that patients who have a chronic illness that may be affecting their immune system or a chronic illness that requires drugs that affects their immune system are also at higher risk of developing complications. And we repeatedly have to reinforce the fact they're not at risk of getting the infection any higher than anyone else if they follow social distancing. But if they get the infection, those populations are at risk for more severe complications. The other message is that the CDC was very quick to point out that this is not just a disease of the elderly or the chronically ill. In fact, at one point, they stated that 40% of the hospitalizations due to COVID-19 we're in the age group of 20 to 54 years of age. And unfortunately, we see on the news every night young people dying from this disease. And it's been very important to stress to those younger individuals who feel that they are invincible, that they have to follow the social distancing, certainly to help protect themselves, but more importantly, to protect others who may be at more risk of the complications and to work as a society rather than as an individual with regard to these measures. We've heard about the symptoms of COVID-19, fever, dry cough, shortness of breath, but could you comment on how these may differ from the common cold or the flu, and then the disease course for what we're seeing for COVID-19? Additionally, new symptoms seem to be associated with the COVID-19 infection. 
So as you learn more about the disease, could you comment on those? You know, things like gastrointestinal symptoms, redness of the eye. Yes. So initially at the start of this pandemic, much of this country was still at the tail end of the seasonal flu season. So many of the symptoms that people would present with, which included the cough, fever, shortness of breath, always had to be potentially distinguished from the seasonal flu. That's where testing may have been helpful and certainly flu tests were still available, influenza tests were available to be used as well. But I think the constellation of those symptoms when we have a pandemic identified certainly makes the COVID-19 the diagnosis that is most suspected in these individuals. If we have patients who usually have symptoms of cough or shortness of breath on a chronic basis, and as a pulmonologist, many of my patients have some degree of cough and shortness of breath all the time due to their underlying disease, the message has to be that is there a change in their cough? Is there a change in the shortness of breath? And is it associated with other significant symptoms such as the fever? Most patients with bronchitis will not have a fever to the degree that the COVID-19 cases are. So those three were the main symptoms, but now as we've seen more and more patients, we realize that some patients present with the GI symptoms that you mentioned. They tend to be the minority. There's some patients who have coughed up some blood in their sputum, again, a very sm small number. We know from lab tests that there's some inflammation of the liver that occurs and that may actually be a sign of more potential severity. And upper respiratory symptoms, which were a little more common with the common cold, which is coronavirus in the past have may caused mainly common colds. These are occurring in some individuals as well. None of these other symptoms have really reached a point where they are used in the screening process. And I think the, the message is that fever, cough, shortness of breath, or chest discomfort remain the main symptoms that identify somebody at risk for having the infection and may warrant further investigation that might include testing. So being an expert in pulmonary care, do you have a theory as to why some individuals are hit so hard by the virus? You already mentioned some underlying conditions and concerns there. Many in the psoriatic disease community live with these health conditions such as obesity, diabetes, cardiovascular disease, among others. But are there other things or other factors that could weigh into how the virus impacts individuals? Well, the main way this virus affects us is by inhalation of the droplets from infected individuals. The airways and the nasal passages are the first point of entry, and the virus affects those airways by attaching to cells in the lining of those airways. Once that attachment occurs, the virus is able to get into those cells, replicate, and destroy the cell, and this goes on and on and on. Our body's normal defenses for whether it's a virus or a bacteria of this nature are to immediately send inflammatory mediators into the airway to help fight off the infection. This includes white cells and involves chemicals that cause the inflammatory response to start fighting off the virus. The problem is in certain infections, and certainly that occurs in uh, COVID-19, that additional inflammation in the airways may accentuate an underlying inflammation that exists because of asthma or COPD. We also know that the inflammation is not confined to the lung. There's more and more evidence that some of the cardiac cells are involved. So individuals with cardiac disease may find that they have inflamed cardiac muscles that then lead to an increased risk of severity based on that. So it's the underlying inflammation in the airways that affects the linings and affects the lungs' ability to maintain oxygen levels. Once the inflammatory fluid reaches a point where it's flooding these normal airways and air sacs, oxygen levels tend to drop. Now this puts a stress on the whole body, the kidney, the liver, 
brain, all of our tissues. And some of this may explain why myalgias and muscle aches are starting to be noted as, as another symptom of the COVID-19 when the oxygen level drops precipitously, leading to in, inability of the muscles to get enough oxygen. So it is really the effect on oxygen and the ability to maintain that oxygen level probably is the hallmark of why many people who develop the severe disease have multiple involvement of organs, the lung, the heart, the kidneys, the liver, as I mentioned. With so much information out there, we really try to differentiate fact from fiction for our community. Is blood type a factor as to who would develop COVID-19? Well, like a lot of things about COVID-19 right now, those questions are being asked, but the data to support a yes or no is often lacking. There have been a number of reports coming out of China where this obviously started and they have a little bit longer experience of individuals looking at whether blood type is noted to have a, a predisposition for some individuals or others. The small studies that have been done don't seem to point to a direct link between A, B, AB, or O blood type being higher risk for infection. But this is one of the questions, along with many others, that will only be answered by having a larger data set and looking at the results of thousands rather than 20 or 30 patients at a time. So we have seen some positive stabilization of the number of patients being hospitalized in New York or a, a decrease in those individuals being admitted to the ICU. Do you think social or physical distancing is effective? And can you explain how this will help us flatten that curve? Yes, I think as we see the curves that are shown at the, if not daily, frequent uh, White House press briefings, we do feel that social distancing has made a significant impact, and the prediction of deaths hopefully has seen a uh, reduction. And we see the curves locally in New York City, New Jersey, other hotspots in the country starting to flatten as well. And we have to point to the fact that the social distancing is what's working, because we really don't have any other interventions that we've put into place. There's been no vaccine for people. There's been no treatment for outpatient people to prevent them from getting the disease. So the only thing that's slowing down the rate of infection is less transmission among individuals, and that occurs because less individuals are being close together. So that six feet of social distancing, certainly the staying at home that has been recommended has made a big difference with regard to that curve. And I think the real emphasis has to be that Flattening the curve now is all important, and as Dr. Fauci has often said, keeping our foot to the pedal, because as soon as the social distancing is let up, we know there are a lot of individuals who have not been exposed to the virus. They can get exposed, will get exposed, and we could easily see another surge if the social distancing is not persisting for a period of time. And even after that, our abilities to handshake and hug are probably changed forever as far as realizing what this can do in, in such a quick period of time. There have been some concerns raised about NSAID use during infection. Could you comment on why this may be a concern? There's been a number of questions to the CDC and FDA regarding non-steroidal anti-inflammatories, ibuprofen, Motrin. And to this date, there is still no significant evidence one way or the other that the use of those drugs interferes with the body's ability to fight the COVID-19 infection. The recommendations at this point in time is you weigh, like a lot of things in medicine, you weigh a benefit and a risk calculation. If individuals have been using NSAIDs as a means of controlling pain, chronic discomfort from their chronic diseases, at this point in time, they may be wanting to continue those rather than escalating to other medications such as opioids or 
not using medications at all and therefore having some of the symptoms. But if a symptom develops that might suggest COVID-19, the recommendation has been to think twice about continuing it and use something like acetaminophen or Tylenol to control any fever rather than controlling it with the non-steroidals. So it's still an unanswered question. As I said earlier, a lot of these questions will only be answered after we see more and more patients and look at the data a little more closely. Likewise, and you mentioned hydroxychloroquine. My next question for you relates to the possible treatment. Could you provide your perspective on possible therapies or the timing of a potential vaccine for COVID-19? Well, I'll answer the, the vaccine part first, because fortunately, there are a number of large companies, billions of dollars being put into looking for the vaccine against this virus. I repeatedly hear numbers like six to 12 months when we can really start to see a vaccine that might be able to be rolled out to the general public that will lead to a degree of immunity. Having said that, there are places where the trials are starting now. But again, a, a trial that starts now is not going to give enough information for us to roll out a vaccine for probably six to 12 months. And that seems to be a recurring number. With regard to actual treatment, we don't have any firm clinical trials that have shown effectiveness of any drug yet against coronavirus. We do have this coronavirus. We do have a number of studies that are in place, randomized trials, looking at drugs like hydroxychloroquine. In fact, the NIH just reported the initiation of a double-blind randomized trial. I believe it's starting in one of the hospital systems in Tennessee. We also have clinical trials that have been underway with regard to a drug called remdesivir, remdesivir from Gilead Corporation. Each hospital system looks at their patient population, and fortunately, we have multidisciplinary teams of infectious disease doctors, critical care doctors, hospitalists, epidemiologists, looking at the population that comes into their hospital and weighing the benefit and the risk of some of these medications to be used either early on or later on during the course of the illness. Hydroxychloroquine has been adopted by some hospitals as a way to start treating patients who are sick enough to come into the hospital because, again, anecdotally, for hearing from Italy and China, some of these patients do better. Part of the reason some of these other drugs are used is that the COVID-19 virus seems to cause a severe amount of inflammation in the lung, such that secretions are significantly increased, and a pooling of secretions in the lung caused by something called cytokine storm occurs, where the body's immune response to this infection is too aggressive. And some of the drugs that are being looked at are given in a way to slow down the body's immune reaction. So right now, I would say the best thing to do is weigh the benefits and risks in each hospital, each doctor who may have access to some of these drugs to decide if this is a patient who needs it. Because unfortunately, beyond supportive care of oxygen, ventilator support, blood pressure support, we don't have actually any true interventions that have been proven. Thank you, Dr. Rizzo. Ms. Brown. I would imagine that the American Lung Association has been very busy during this unprecedented time. Would you be willing to share some of the ways you are supporting your constituents and the community as a whole? Sure. It is important for all of us to remember right now as constituents and community organizations working with the National Psoriasis Foundation and the American Lung Association that the staff are really still here to help people. And so many of us are experiencing for the first time the requirement of sheltering at home. And as humans, we all love interaction with our families, with our friends and our coworkers. 
And so one of the ways the American Lung Association has been supporting our lung cancer patients and other lung disease patients is to provide check-in calls. And so across the country, we are giving people a call just to say hi, ask how they're doing, is there anything they need, is there anything that we can help them with, and so on. And what we are finding is that right now people are very gracious for those calls. They like the interaction with our staff. It helps someone who is feeling sheltered, alone, and isolated feel less isolated. And another way that we are really helping constituents is to offer our helpline. This is where they can call and reach out to our staff, some who are nurses and respiratory therapists. They're available seven days a week at 1-800-LUNG-USA. And anyone can call that helpline free to get information or to talk about what their needs are. For you both, there's so many facets of patient care during this time beyond the COVID-19 infection or even a particular disease state. And you've touched on some things like anxiety caused by the pandemic. Many of our constituents have lost their jobs, that feeling of social isolation, or even the loss of the daily routine. Do you have any suggestions for our providers to support our patients in their patient care efforts? Well, I'll jump in and say, I, I would like to say first and foremost that it is normal for patients and providers, especially those on the front line, to feel a bit anxious and distressed as a result of all that is happening. And we hope that people will just remember it's okay to have these feelings. We encourage everyone to take care of themselves. And sometimes that means using other coping strategies like eating right, getting enough rest, living physically active lifestyles and staying in control or in contact with friends and families. However, we want them to continue practicing social distancing, but even a call or a FaceTime can really give the boost that an individual needs. And so we remind everyone again, if they have concerns about a lung health issue, our helpline is there seven days a week to help them. Dr. Rizzo, do you have any further comments? Well, I think Deb covered all of it. I think the important factor is that being in a household at home, a lot of it depends on whether you're confined at home by yourself or with family. You want to try to build some type of support system, whether it is physically in your home or, as Deb said, using helplines, using social internet uh, media to talk to friends, whether it's Facebook, things of that nature. But I also think it's important that part of that communication is with your healthcare provider as well, because they can often give you some support, not always medication support, but we have to remember that some of these chronically ill patients used to get their support by going to support meetings, attending pulmonary rehabilitation programs. And unfortunately, as a result of social distancing, many of those programs are now put on hold. So we have to realize that these patients need input and the phone calls that Deb mentioned, the Lung Association is making. Deb, you mentioned your hotline. Would you please comment on other resources the American Lung Association may provide to the community? I hear you have a great virtual smoking cessation program. Yes, the American Lung Association, like many other organizations, had to quickly adjust their program delivery. The question was, how do we take the hands-on face-to-face community programs that we have and now make them nationwide without losing some of that support that was so important to individuals. So the American Lung Association made all of our face-to-face programs virtual. And as you mentioned, a couple of examples include our Freedom from Smoking program. So if people want to quit, we generally have four modalities available to help them. And one of them is a self-help module. One of them is 
just through an internet-based program and then an internet helpline combination program. Generally, we have a face-to-face -face program, but of course that has been suspended. But another couple examples that we have is each Monday, we have a weekly webinar to update individuals about anything new on COVID-19. And this format really allows for people to have a question and answer type conversation with Dr. Rizzo and is quite effective. We also have a monthly virtual Better Breathers Club, which takes the place of our support groups that people were really involved in and, and was really important to them. Another interesting example is research programs. We have announced that there is a launch of a $25 million initiative to end COVID-19 and defend against future respiratory virus pandemics. And the COVID-19 action initiative will be used to expand the Lung Association's ongoing respiratory research program. It also enhance key public health measures and establish an advanced network to stop future respiratory virus pandemics. There will be an advocacy and education component to this measure. And so we're very excited to really get that up and running. The other areas that we work in that are important to COVID-19 is we are working closely with our nonprofit colleagues to advocate for dedicated relief for charities, such as the American Lung Association and the National Psoriasis Foundation in the next COVID bill that appears in Congress. We also had a letter go out to support healthcare workers on the front lines who are helping patients with COVID-19. These healthcare workers need to have access to the manufacturing and distribution of personal protective equipment. And we had over 200 organizations sign on the letter that was sent to senior Trump administration officials. So those are just some of the examples of resources that are available and efforts that we are supporting. Thank you so much. And on behalf of our community, thank you for all you're doing to support everyone. So for you both, we truly are all in this together. And in closing of our podcast today, why do you think collaboration and partnership within our healthcare community organizations like the National Psoriasis Foundation and the American Lung Association are so important in this critical time? Well, we truly are all in this together. And thank you for letting us join you today. As a healthcare community organization, we have limited people and dollar resources, and we all have to work together where we can and be better prepared for a response in the future. And examples of our advocacy efforts and our education efforts where we can work together are really important, but then that allows us to direct those precious other resources to areas where we might be different. And I would agree with Deb. I think we are all in this together. And even if our organizations identify certain diseases or lungs as our primary factor, we know that many of our patients have comorbidities. They have the same issues with regard to access to care, cost of medications, dealing with bureaucracy of insurance companies. So anything that can be done from an education, advocacy, and research point always can get done better if organizations like ours and like the National Psoriasis Foundation pool our resources, because by ourselves, we don't have the resources that can make this happen. Leveraging our finances and our manpower to get the same results for all of our patients is really what we need to do. Thank you, Dr. Rizzo and Deb, for your time and efforts to present your thoughts and your valuable insights. 
partnerships between organizations and all of us coming together will be the best way to support our patients and our providers during this time. To our listeners, our hope is that you'll gain information to keep you safe during this pandemic and as we move forward. The MPF and our medical and scientific advisors will continue to review COVID-19 data in relation to our community and partner with providers and organizations such as the American Lung Association to provide you with the most current and accurate information. Stay safe and be well. For tips about maximizing telehealth appointments, contact the National Psoriasis Foundation's Patient Navigation Center at education at psoriasis.org and ask for the telehealth fact sheet. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Sound Bites for people with psoriasis and psoriatic arthritis. If you or someone you love has ever struggled with psoriatic disease, our hope is that through this series, you'll gain information to help you lead a healthier life and inspire you to look to the future. Please join us in a couple weeks for another inspiring podcast. You can find this or all future episodes of Sound Bites on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, and the National Psoriasis Foundation webpage. To learn more about this topic or others, please visit psoriasis.org or contact us with your questions or comments by email at podcast at psoriasis.org.